Thank you all. Good morning. I will not talk about where the cash is at the end of the year, so uh, <laughs> thank you for getting that out of the way, Phil. <laughs> so, uh, good morning. It's a pleasure to be back at the AB's annual forecasting conference. Um, the year just passed has certainly been another eventful year for forecasters. Today I want to speak about three topics. Um, I'll begin with the RBA's outlook for the Australian economy and as you would have seen, we've just updated it in last week's statement on monetary policy. I'll then discuss our assessment of spare capacity in the labour market and in the economy. And I'll run this out by talking about some of the changes we've been making at the RBA to enhance transparency. This includes changes to the S&P, which we've published last week for the first time immediately after the board meeting. The S&P has also had a makeover designed to give you new insights into how we are seeing the key economic issues. So I'll start with our views on the outlook. A year ago, when I last spoke to you, we've ju we'd just seen the highest rate of inflation in several decades. A monetary policy had been tightened at a brisk pace from the ultra-accommodative settings during the pandemic. Since then, the economy has evolved broadly in line with our expectations. Inflation and GDP growth are not too far from where we thought they'd be a year ago. Sorry, just went too fast here. Uh, similar to the experience of many advanced economies, two key forces um, that are driving developments in the economy continue to be high inflation and the restrictive monetary policy needed to address it. So first off, infl on inflation. As you can see, it's still high and above the RBA's target range. But as you can also see, it's been coming down and at a slightly faster rate than our forecast three months ago. Headline inflation is 4.1%, around half of its peak a year ago. <coughs> Underlying inflation, <coughs> we often use a trim mean to measure this, has also decreased over the same period and it's sitting now at 4.2%. Looking ahead, and you can see that on the graph here, it will take some time for inflation to get back within the target range. Based on our central forecast, we expect it to return to the target range of 2 to 3 in 2025 and to the midpoint in 26. I'd like to stress that there's substantial uncertainty around forecasts that far out. You can see that here in the blue uncertainty fans around the central forecast. Our forecast reflects our expectation that subdued economic growth will balance demand and supply of goods and services and labour market conditions will ease to be around levels that are consistent with sustained full employment and inflation at target. I'll return to our assessment of spare capacity later. An important trend underneath the aggregate inflation figures, and that's here as well as abroad the case, as you'd heard just now, is the divergence in the path of core goods and services price inflation. Like in many other advanced economies, most of the decline in inflation so far in Australia has been from lower goods price inflation. That's the purple bars. In fact, a faster decline in goods inflation was the main driver of the lower than expected outcome in the most recent inflation release. We're seeing the earlier easing in global upstream costs being passed through to the prices consumers are facing. <coughs> We've been hearing for some time now from firms and our liaison that supply chains have been improving and imported goods inflation easing. Subdued demand growth 
has also contributed to the decline in goods inflation. Looking ahead, we expect goods inflation for many categories to be low for a time. This reflects the early improvements in global supply chains and below-trend global demand overall. But recent events in the Red Sea highlight that this moderation in goods inflation in global goods inflation might be bumpy. But services price inflation, and that's the green bars, remains high and broadly based. This strength has been because of continued pressure from the level of demand exceeding supply alongside strong growth in domestic costs. Firms in our liaison program continue to say that they face pressure from higher labor and non-labor costs like professional services, logistics, and insurance. We are forecasting that services inflation will decline from here, but only gradually as demand moves into better balance with supply and domestic cost pressures moderate. This decline in service inflation, service price inflation is necessary for the inflation target to be achieved over time. The overall cost of labor is one cost, considered, one cost consideration for firms when setting the prices of the goods and services they provide. And this is particularly so in the relatively labor-intensive services sector. We expect wage growth to be around its peak and to decline gradually in line with the easing in labor markets. You see that on the left-hand side of this graph. We're already seeing signs of easing wage pressures in some industries, particularly in business services. Importantly though, overall labor costs faced by firms are also determined by labor productivity. That is, the output produced for each hour an employee works. Recent week productivity outcomes have been an important contributor to high labor cost growth. Our forecast for wages growth is consistent with inflation in the target range, assuming that productivity growth returns to around its long run average over the next few years. I'd like to emphasize that productivity growth is a structural factor that has a lot of measurement noise over a high frequency. So it takes a longer period of observation to get a decent gauge of it. Quarterly movements of productivity are really not a useful guide when it comes to assessing the relationship between inflation and average earning, earning growth uh, and productivity over the next few years. While it is difficult to forecast productivity growth, much of the recent weakness in productivity has likely been a byproduct of the pandemic and the economic cycle. So it can be expected to unwind over the next few years. Some examples of these temporary factors are the capacity challenges faced by firms related to pandemic or weather disruptions, so the supply side. Capital shallowing as the increase in hours worked outpaced the growth in capital stock. And additional employee training required given the high turnover and jobs growth we've seen in very tight labor market. As these influences fade or indeed unwind, productivity growth should pick up in the period ahead. And you can see on the latest GDP data, we kind of see a little bit of a, of a light there already. It's coming positive. But as I said, quarterly numbers is not really one to bank on here. Um, turning to econ economic activity, we've seen activity here and in most advanced economies soften over the second half of last year in response to high inflation and tighter monetary policy. A common component of this recent softness is weaker consumption growth. In Australia, high inflation, higher tax payments and higher interest rates have together 
significantly reduced household incomes. And many households have responded to this by cutting back on their spending or making other adjustments to their finances like saving less, or in some cases, drawing on their savings buffers. Going forward, and you can see that on the graph here, we expect economic growth to remain subdued in the near term as inflation and early interest rate increases continue to weigh on domestic demand growth, particularly of household consumption. For the next few quarters, the pressure on household budgets from declines in real incomes over the past couple of years is expected to continue to drag on consumption. We expect it to affect consumption a bit more than in our forecast three months ago. This period of below-trend demand growth will bring about a better balance between supply and demand in the economy. Growth in non-mining business and public investment has been high over the past year. This has been supported by a large pipeline of public and private sector construction projects and an easing of supply constraints. In this graph here, you can just see the various categories um, of these uh, investment um, projects. While we don't expect to see a continuation of the high growth rates over 2023, activity in the construction sector is forecast to remain at a high level. So there will likely continue to be capacity constraints in the industry. And firms in our liaison program report partic this particularly for the construction of in infrastructure projects. Later this year, GDP growth is forecast to pick up gradually as the effects of high inflation ease. The impact of early increases in the cash rate on GDP growth will also start to fade. This forecast is underpinned by a pickup in consumption growth as real household income growth turns positive again this year. As always, there are a range of uncertainties around these forecasts and we've heard many, many more than I'm gonna list here in the previous sessions. I'll briefly touch on two key ones that we've been considering. First, while we've had a good idea of how tighter monetary policy has affected household incomes today, the full effect on household consumption is still to play out. It's possible that, following a period of large declines in real incomes, households save more of their income than we expect, and so consumption remains subdued for longer than anticipated. This would put downward pressure on labor demand and on inflation. But there could also be developments in the economy that would mean it takes longer to get inflation back to target. This could happen if households save less or draw down on their savings to support spending to a greater degree than we've assumed in our central forecasts. The pressure on labor or non-labor costs could also be more than we expect, for instance, from poor productivity outcomes or from unexpected supply shocks. The longer inflation stays away from target though, the greater the risk that inflation expectations drift higher. And history shows that even if inflation expectations were to drift higher, it would require more monetary policy tightening and a costly period of higher unemployment to stabilize those inflation expectations back around target and return inflation to target. So let me turn now to developments in the spare capacity. We've increased our focus in this area in the S&P, including by publishing our assessment of spare capacity in the labor market and in the economy. We've also published a chapter on full employment in the S&P, which explains how we assess full employment, expanding on a speech the governor made late last year. For monetary policy, full employment is the maximum level of employment that is consistent with low and stable inflation. 
I've previously highlighted the challenges around measuring spare capacity in the labour market and the economy. Full employment cannot be observed directly, cannot be summarised by a single statistic. Any single labour market statistic indicator <coughs> provides only a partial view of spare capacity in the labour market. And it also changes over time what is full employment as, we as the structure of the economy evolves. For this reason, we draw on a broad set of information to form a comprehensive assessment of how close the labour market is to full employment. This information includes labour market data, survey measures, model-based estimates, and liaison with businesses. We also seek the views of a wide range of stakeholders. And of course, we also use economic models to infer spare capacity. Each of these models has their own strengths and weaknesses. So using a number of approaches allows us to capture better, more diverse range of information and perspectives. Some of the measures we look at to assess the labour market and full employment are summarised in this graph. This graph shows where these measures are currently, the blue dots. Compared with history, that's the grey bars, that's 80% of the historical observations in the past 20 years. Currently, we assess that most labour market indicators are still looking tight relative to historical norms. Model-based estimates of full employment also suggest that conditions are still tight. But the labour market has eased and is closer to full employment than it was in late 2022, and that is the orange dots. That's when we think the labour market was at its tightest in the past two decades. This easing in the labour market reflects the slow down in economic growth I discussed earlier. Adding to this, labour supply has increased, boosted by the elevated population growth and also record high participation rates in the labour force. In addition to spare capacity in the labour market, we also make assessments of demand relative to the economy's capacity to supply goods and services, and that is also known as potential output. <coughs> like full employment, potential output cannot be measured directly, and so we use a range of indicators. Looking at these measures, we assess that current demand exceeds potential output. Similar to, de to developments in the labour market, though, the recent slowing in economic growth has lessened the gap between demand and supply. So looking ahead, we expect the labour market to slow in response to the softening in economic growth. We expect much of the adjustment in the labour market to happen through a decline in average hours worked. And that's the difference between the top line, that's just the unemployment rate, and the bottom one, which is the hours-based underutilisation rate. And while employment is expected to continue to increase, for a time it is expected to do so at a slower rate than the increase in the working age population. This means that the unemployment rate is expected to increase, though it is still forecast to remain at low levels relative to the past couple of decades. This easing will contribute to bringing the labour market broadly in line with full employment. Subdued economic growth will also help bring demand and supply in the economy back into balance. We will continue to share our assessment of how conditions in the labour market stand relative to our view of full employment. I'd like to finish up by highlighting some of the recent changes we have made to improve the transparency of our forecasts and assumptions. These changes will provide greater insight into our economic assessment 
and a richer view of the inputs to the monetary policy decision-making process. This improved transparency is aligned with the recommendations of the RBA review, as well as the recently updated statement on the conduct of monetary policy. There are three key changes we've made that I'd like to highlight. First, as I've mentioned earlier, we've remodeled the S&P by revising its structure, improving its flow, and adding an overview that highlights the narrative leading to the policy decision. We've also added a high-level summary to help readers access the key information at a glance. Second, we have published our assessments of potential output and full employment in the S&P. From here on, these will be a regular feature of the publication. And third, we have increased the availability and accessibility of forecast data. These includes, this includes increasing the range of forecast variables and assumptions published in the S&P. Data files of historical forecasts are also being published in an easily downloadable format. We hope this will help to stimulate external research that could be beneficial to the wider community of economists. And I imagine this audience will be a keen user of this data. We have also committed to regularly publish an evaluation of the staff forecasts. Each year, we conduct an internal review of the RBA forecasts and insights from these reviews have been published for the past two years in the November S&P. We will continue to do so going forward. We will also continue to publish insights from our business and community liaison program as we've been doing since late 22. So to sum up, inflation is coming down, but it's still high. And it will take some time before it is back in the RBA's target range. Inflation is expected to decline to be in the range of two to 3% in 25, and to reach the midpoint of 2.5% in 26. This decline is based on the central projections that subdued economic growth that we have forecast will balance demand and supply of goods and services, and that in the next couple of years, the labor market will be around levels consistent with full employment. Risks remain though, and as you'd expect, we will continue to monitor the incoming data closely. I hope you will find the sizable changes to the S&P and the enhanced transparency useful. These changes are a step in a continuous evolution and like our forecasts, our way of communication will continue to develop. So thank you for your time. Well, as I said, it's probably not a quarterly, you know, blow-by-blow blow job. You, you kind of look, look at it over a number of years, whether you're tracking a lot of it. I think we all do that. We all need to assess it. We have actually seen things turn around already. We think quite a bit of that turnaround will just, um, uh, just come from, uh, from the pandemic effects fading away but also from the state of the labour market um, uh, that we're projecting. Um, if it were not to go there, well, there's different ways it can work out. Um, you know, if you want to contain inflation, you could have wage growth going lower is one, uh, is one way to do it. You can see that 
you know, that's the consolation that we have, which is the productivity and, and the average um, earnings paid kind of add up to the unit labour costs, and that is a key input into inflation. There's also other elements that are actually in the price setting process of firms. Um, so it's just one that we will need to see how it, how it works out. But at the moment, that's kind of the constellation that is underpinning our forecasts. Other questions? One from over there? No? Anyone courageous? <laughs> okay, well, we can talk afterwards. How about that? <laughs> Phil? Thank you, Mary. Um, I want to ask you a seasonal adjustment, which is something that no one's had to think about for decades. <coughs> Well, I, I think the way I take it, I, look, the experts on seasonal adjustment is the ABS. Uh, so it's a whole big group. That's that's what they do. Um, it, it would be presumptuous to think that you can do a better job just on the seasonal adjustment. But what you typically do is if you think there is some extra volatility, is you smooth through, right? You look at three months, you look at the quarterly numbers. And, of course, if you do that for both employment and for the latest retail trade data, what you see that the figures don't look quite as extreme. December is very low, you know, but actually November was very high. We know that people kind of move their shopping, um, you know, from December into Black Friday, but then overlaying, we've had a couple of years of pandemic. So I think to some extent, we need to give ourselves a bit of time for the ABS and for the seasonal adjustment factors to settle, to get a cleaner read. And during that time, I think we just need to be careful not to overemphasize a single monthly number. So, so we've been looking at these measures for some time. These are not new. Maybe we're publishing them now. Um, and and that really comes from a structure factor going on for a couple of years. It was mentioned earlier, right? Part-time, have, we have a, a long-term trend in part-time increase. Um, so, so a headspace measure is going to give you your work, you don't work, but it's not picking up the subtlety of a changing labour force where actually the margin of adjustment is actually how many hours you work, particularly as the share of part-time employees increases. And of course, we've had these data available for a long time. The ABS asked people, you know, would you like to work more hours? And that is, that's actually true for full-time as well, right? There's a bit of an arbitrary division on when you're full-time or a part-time. So we've been using these numbers internally for, for quite some time to build up a, a, a richer picture around, uh, around just who wants to work more hours but can't get them. Uh, and in that sense, we've moved our measures probably more into an hours-based perspective. Uh, but think that there is benefits of looking at all of those measures. The, the, the advantage of the unemployment rate is it's got a really, really long history, and that kind of gives you historical episodes to base off on. So I wouldn't throw one or the other away, but it's certainly a big one. And we've looked into, into this analytically the last few. There's um, I think it, we might have published that work actually a few years back. Recent recessions, particularly shallower recessions, 
hours worked was a much bigger margin of adjustment than the, the headcount employed, unemployed, um, compared to a couple of decades ago. And so again, that's informing our forecast that we think actually the hours worked is gonna be, um, you know, um, sizable margin of adjustment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of actually yearly spoken, and you look at this bank that's um, owned by Stephanie's recommendation for rent, increased transport and increased communication. One aspect of that mix today is we're now publishing your uh, installation year will be assumptions underlying your forecast, and the Reserve Bank forecasts are, are based on uh, rate cuts from this year. Um, on the weekend, uh, off the home office clearance rate hit the 7 to 6%, which I think is the highest of that So can I just take two things um, separately? So I'm, I'm not gonna comment on the short-term movements in the housing market and what's been driving those. We know it's a complex issue. There's more than one. But the issue of the cash rate assumption forecast, this is a technical assumption, and we've been very clear about this <coughs> repeatedly, that we, we need to have a technical assumption in the forecast. What we do is, uh, basically market expectations in a broad sense. We do an average between market across market expectations. We've been doing this for a very long time. And we've actually been, uh, been talking about what the cash rate assumption is for a very long time, if you go back. We've just not added it to the table, but people said, well, we want to know what's in there. Uh, but this is not, this is not a, a prediction of what we are going to do. This is not a promise of what we are going to do. And we've been very clear, uh, clear about that every time We've been asked, it's, it's everywhere written in there, and I think the governor has been very clear about what the future path for cash rate, cash rate is and isn't. We do need to put something into the forecast, but they have a very wide error band uh, around that. So I, I would like, if you, if you can help us getting the message out there of what the technical assumption is and isn't, um, you know, that will be helpful. That's not how I would phrase it just because the household sector is broad. We know this is an average, there's a dispersion around it. Um, as you can see in the graph, I don't have if you eyeball it, you can take a ruler out. Um, uh, I think in the next couple of quarters, probably around about mid-year, we're expecting these headwinds to fade. And again, the biggest headwinds for households in agri is actually inflation and is tax payable. Some of that is linked to linked to inflation and the bracket creep. Um, and the, the interest rate impact is actually on the household sector overall, not the biggest, but there are those people with mortgages where it is sizable, and there's those people without mortgages where it's kind of not sizable, so it's with the savings where it's actually a positive. So, so that's kind of why I just wanna qualify a little bit the pain and see the households, not as the, that one unit um, uh, that is in there. 
But yes, so on aggregate, um, we're at the moment expecting for the, for the growth rate to kind of turn positive again, right about mid-year.